Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, why is Belarus making international headlines? Sprinter Kristina Timonuska's name became more widely known as a result of the Olympic Games being held in Tokyo right now, but not because of her exploits on the track. The Belarusian 24-year-old had to seek a humanitarian visa from Poland after her country's team tried to force her to return home, which she didn't want to do after she criticised her coaches. Timonuska was one of more than 2,000 Belarusian sports figures who signed an open letter calling for new elections and for political prisoners to be freed in her country. Her husband has now also fled to the Ukraine and the pair are expected to meet up in Poland. The story, playing out as it has on such an international stage, has kept a spotlight on Alexander Lukashenko's regime. This latest story comes after he sparked international outrage in May by dispatching a fighter jet to intercept a Ryanair plane flying from Greece to Lithuania to arrest a journalist on board. It also happens on the same week a missing activist, Vitaly Shishov, was found dead in the Ukraine. A murder investigation is underway there now. There's a lot of questions about all of those things, and there's a lot to learn about Lukashenko's regime, the activists fighting for democracy, and potential outcomes for the country. To chat us through it all, I'm joined on The Explainer today by Matthew Luxmore, who covers Russia and the former Soviet Union for Radio Free Europe, and who has been following this story. Thanks so much for joining us, Matthew. And a good place to start is probably with Alexander Lukashenko. Who is he? What's his background? Sure. Um, Well, thanks for having me. Um, Lukashenko is uh, widely uh, known as Europe's last dictator, which is what um, it's a term that was coined by former US Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and has kind of stuck with him since. Um, And the obvious reason is um, the way he treats his opponents, which I think we can get into a bit later, but also the fact that he's won every single election since the first election he won in 1994, which means he's been in power going on for 27 years. 1994 was considered the first and only relatively free and fair election in Belarus. Um, and shortly after that election, Lukashenko, who's a former boss of a, of a Soviet collective farm, set about um, essentially dismantling the country's fledgling democracy um, and putting in place all of the systems um, and all of the um, different instruments that would keep him in power for many years to come. And as, we, as we've seen, he's been fairly successful, if you measure success by you know, brutality and, um, you know, an uncompromising attitude towards your opponents. So he has won every election since. And um, some of these elections have sparked uh, protests from his opponents and especially from the supporters of opposition candidates that he has um, barred from participating in the elections against him. Um, And those um, protests have then sparked Western sanctions, which have been increasing and decreasing over the years um, and once again kind of ratcheted up after incidents in in Belarus. Um, So yeah, he's um, largely, I'd say, kind of a dictator in the kind of old school mold um, in neighboring Russia. The authoritarian system is, I say, what most experts would say, it's a lot smarter. It doesn't, although that has also changed recently with the kind of unprecedented crackdown in recent months. But um, it's more of a smart system in the sense that it kind of uh, uses um, the media, um, informational resources, as they say, um, and doesn't rely so much on uh, violence um, against opponents. But Lukashenko is definitely more of a kind of old school dictator um, who doesn't seem to shy away from uh, taking pretty drastic action to keep himself in power. 
If we go back to those 94 elections, which you say were probably the last free and, and open ones, what was he promising in 1994 that got him into power in the first place? Uh, it was quite a populist uh, platform. He promised to fight corruption, um, which uh, obviously is, is, is an endemic problem in the former Soviet Union and was becoming a big problem as Belarus uh, transitioned or tried to transition um, into a market economy. Uh, he promised to kind of shore up struggling families in Belarus, um, which you know had been felt left by the wayside by this transition when the currency, the ruble, collapsed um, and people were really finding it difficult to get by. He promised to reintroduce uh, symbols of um, Belarus's past from the short period when Belarus uh, flirted with democracy before the Soviet Union. But as we saw after he was elected, um, he quickly kind of backtracked from a lot of these promises. He was popular for some time because I think a lot of people in Belarus uh, felt at the time that the country needed this kind of iron grip or at least a strong leader to uh, put it on the straight and narrow. Um, but of course, that people quickly realized kind of came at the expense of, um, you know, some kind of democratization in the country. Yeah. So what has the reality of his rule been like? What has life been there economically, socially, culturally? He's largely tried to build a system that um, is essentially apolitical. So to essentially defeat all kind of uh, signs of um, real opposition in the country or real debate. Um, life has been, I guess, stable uh, in perhaps the negative sense for most Belarusians who have largely tried to get by. They earn very low salaries, uh, at least compared to the EU countries, um, the Belarus borders. Um, you know, they've they've largely been able to get by the years when um, Belarus's economy, which is heavily reliant on Russia's economy, uh, was largely stable. Again, wages were low and um, the GDP wasn't growing. But um, many people and again, people, some people in Belarus still support Lukashenko and largely for the fact that he did bring this stability to the country. Of course, the story for his opponents or anyone who tried to speak out against him has been uh, completely different. Um, he has shown that he is uh, he has no tolerance whatsoever for uh, opposition to his rule or for dissent. Um, so the story has been very different for um, people who have tried to stand against him in elections or for people who support um, candidates put forward by the opposition. And um, uh, many people uh, who stood against him in elections, even prior to the election, they simply disappeared from the scene. Uh, there are still many, many unsolved cases in Belarus of opponents to Lukashenko who disappeared in the build-up to elections. Um, investigations were dropped or kind of came up in inconclusive. And Lukashenko's opponents accused him of uh, essentially sanctioning uh, the murders of um, several of his opponents who, again, we haven't heard of uh, since they disappeared from the scene. And many others have fled the country. Yeah, because I think last summer probably was the first time a lot of people in other European countries would have become very familiar with the politics of Belarus. Can you take us back to last summer? What was the build up to the election then like? In some ways, it was kind of a typical election for Lukashenko. It was uh, this feeling that, uh, you know, he once again bar all of his eligible opponents um, from standing and will again uh, rig the system to re-elect himself. So I think in most people's uh, eyes, um, this was the most likely outcome we see, you know, five more years of Lukashenko, the longest running 
leader in uh, Europe. Um, but what really distinguished the election was the fact that um, the opposition, well, firstly, there was the economic situation. Uh, Belarus is really struggling economically, more so than it has um, in recent years. And it's been struggling already quite seriously since um, the Russian ruble crash and Russian economy went into crisis after Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Of course, Belarus is very reliant on the Russian economy. But the other element was the fact that the opposition actually managed to, in quite a rare instance of uh, solidarity, you could say, managed to come together and put forward three very strong candidates um, who uh, were very popular um, and clearly posed um, a threat to Lukashenko's popularity. There were three men. One of them was a blogger called Sergei Tikhanovsky. Some of your listeners might recognize uh, the surname. He's the husband of uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who's now waging a diplomatic campaign to unseat Lukashenko from her exile in Lithuania. Um, Tikhanovsky, very popular blogger with, I think, several million followers, um, subscribers on, on YouTube. He was arrested in the, in the build-up to the election uh, on one of his travels across the country to gather support. Uh, the other man was businessman Valery Tsepkala, who uh, fled to Russia in July, just, uh, I think, two weeks before the election, fearing arrest just like two of his opponents, the second being Viktor Babarika, who is um, the head of a Russian-owned bank in Minsk um, and widely seen as Lukashenko's main rival. He was also arrested uh, in the build-up to the election. And just this month, he was sentenced to 14 years in prison on corruption charges that he says were basically trumped up to silence him. Um, and something quite incredible happened when these three men were arrested. Um, just, uh, I think, around two weeks before the election, um, uh, the wives of two of them, Sergei Tikhanovsky and um, Valery Tsepkala, and also the campaign manager for Viktor Babarika, they got together and they um, decided to organize a series of rallies and stand together as a kind of unified group um, in decrying Lukashenko's um, arrest of his opponents um, and calling on him to hold a free and fair elections. And that was really when Belarus, um, I think, um, started coming onto the radar of a lot of people outside the country, uh, beyond, beyond the journalism sphere, because these protests were really massive and um, unprecedented um, in Belarus. Tens of thousands of people came out to watch these very charismatic women speak to them about, um, you know, quite open about election fraud and the need for a new leadership. Um, and I think um, Lukashenko was just spooked by this. Um, ultimately, he, he made another big mistake by sanctioning Svetlana Tikhanovskaya's run in the presidential election in the place of her husband, Sergei Tikhanovsky. And Lukashenko made statements in his kind of, he, he, he's often kind of made these kind of macho, sexist statements, um, which, um, you know, a lot of his supporters really like, but it's something I think the country had grown very used to. He dismissed these three women as three little girls, um, and he sanctioned Tsihanovska's run in the election because uh, he believed that she would, she would be no threat to him, largely because she's a woman. I think he believes that in Belarus, um, the country, uh, which uh, really respects in his mind his kind of macho leadership, would never elect a woman to be president. Um, and of course, what we saw happen was um, against the backdrop of an election that was marred by multiple allegations of fraud, Tsikhanovskaya um, announced that she had won the election and her supporters and some independent journalists um, 
conducted analyses that suggested that she had actually garnered the majority of the votes. I guess we can't know that for sure, but um, she considers herself to be the rightful winner of that election. Yeah, and she's kind of become a figurehead really in Belarus for the opposition, hasn't she? Yeah, she is the uh, opposition leader in exile. I think that's how she's widely known. And to a lot of her supporters, she is the uh, rightful president of Belarus. Um, She fled the country shortly after the election. And then uh, Maria Kolesnikova, who's one of her, another of the women in the kind of trifecta of protest leaders, um, she carried on uh, hosting protests before she herself was arrested. But Tsikhanovska then moved to Lithuania um, and she has since then been kind of waging this diplomatic campaign, meeting with world leaders in the West uh, and trying to drum up their support for further, more debilitating sanctions against Lukashenko's government. And she's uh, certainly kind of taken on the mantle of um, president in, in exile, so to speak. I think she she's done quite a good job of um, gathering support, at least outside of Belarus. Um, the situation in Belarus is harder to uh, assess because um, Western journalists are not allowed in with very few exceptions. And there has no been there's there's been no independent public opinion polling in the country um, since Lukashenko came to power. So it's very hard to kind of gauge public opinion outside of uh, maybe more anecdotal evidence. And we should mention that she has been in Ireland recently doing some of that diplomatic work, trying to get more support for the opposition in Belarus. But interestingly, she was also in Ireland as a child, as one of the Chernobyl children who came here for respite and recuperation after the disaster there. But I'm interested in her background. Was she always political or has she come to take on the mantle from her husband in a more slow way, I guess? Not at all. I think it's definitely the latter. Um... As far as we know, she she had a quite a modest uh, background. She was she was she was essentially a housewife. It's also how she described herself. She stayed at home with the children. Um, she was an English teacher uh, as well as her main job, uh, which I guess helps her now and helped her a lot when she was trying to, as you say, kind of um, develop herself into this uh, globe-trotting uh, politician in exile. She's definitely had to grow into the role. Uh, there's no evidence that she held strong public opposition views uh, beforehand. Obviously, she supported her husband's uh, run for president and many of the views that he espoused in um, his YouTube videos, where he quite engagingly interviewed uh, average Belarusians on the street who would, uh, you know, lament um, Lukashenko's uh, uh, many years long rule and uh, criticize many of his policies, which is something that you hear very rarely from Belarus and Tsikhanovsky, the blogger, Svetlana's husband, kind of made these people uh, speak up, uh, which is why his videos, in large part why his videos were so popular, because he was doing something new and is also why they were such a threat to the government, which uh, didn't want these people's views to be aired. Um, But to answer your question, I think Tsihanovska has definitely grown into the role and um, she now seems to be very media savvy. And whenever something happens uh, involving Belarus, uh, she's very quick to... Uh, issue a statement um, condemning the government, which kind of furthers her cause. Yeah, we see that from outside of Belarus. But as you said, it's hard to get the picture from inside Belarus and to judge what's actually happening. But from what we know, what has the fallout from the election and protests of last year been for the ordinary people in the country? Yeah, it's been, I think, a very hard time in Belarus. Um, People who work for the state especially for factories um, that uh, organize strikes 
against the government during the height of the protests. Many of them have been disciplined, some of them have been fired, others have been fined for their participation in um, or what is seen as their participation or solidarity with the opposition movement. Anyone who joined anti-government protests has essentially kind of fallen under this dragnet of um, government repression. Just uh, uh, very recently, in the last couple of weeks, a 19-year-old was sentenced to five years in a, in a penal colony um, in Belarus simply for the act of joining an anti-government protest. Um, and we don't know his story because, um, you know, he wasn't allowed to publicly air it. But as far as we know, you know, he may have simply joined friends out of curiosity. Um, so if a 19-year-old can be jailed, put in prison for five years just for joining an anti-government protest, kind of gives you a sense of... Um, the calculations that the average Belarusian has to make um, when they even consider uh, doing anything that might be seen as um, showing solidarity for the opposition movement. Um, so again, I mean, I, I guess it's worth um, mentioning, you know, I, I, I'm one of the many journalists who was denied accreditation uh, to uh, cover the elections in Belarus last year. And I'd been to the, I've been to the country as a journalist three times previously. Um, so it's hard for me um, to say, but um, I think it's worth uh, mentioning that Lukashenko does still have some supporters in Belarus. As far as we know, it's, it's, the, min it's the minority, especially after the protests and the kind of brutal campaign of repression that he has unleashed. Um, but there are still many people who says, you know, we need a strong hand who, and this is perhaps the most important thing, believe the government's narrative that the West is out to get Belarus, is out to dismantle and weaken Belarus, um, which is a narrative that's very popular in Russia and that's advanced by the government um, in Russia as well. But I think um, the consensus um, is that these people are probably in the minority, although many people have left Belarus and an even larger number, I think, uh, probably wisely has decided not to share their views. Yeah, it's quite remarkable that things like national strikes happen when you hear the context all around it. Are those national strikes, Are they have they stopped now Is or is there any kind of mass movements like that happening at the moment? Uh, there are no mass movements at the moment. The protests have largely subsided. Um, there's still very small groups of people who come out, um, I think on Saturdays and Sundays to walk through the streets with um, uh, the protest symbol, which is kind of the old flag of um, the short-lived uh, Belarusian uh, democratic experiment. Lukashenko, one of, the, one of his, the first things he did after his election in 1994 was he introduced a kind of Soviet-style flag. He's very much kind of a man in the Soviet mold. He uh, he kept the name of the security service, the KGB, which is the Soviet era name, uh, and still kind of instills in some people who live in this part of the world kind of like a sense of foreboding. Um, he introduced this uh, Soviet style flag and he uh, introduced Russian as the official language. Um, but no, people still come out occasionally for protests. Um, uh, which I think the government occasionally lets these very small rallies slide. But no, there's no mass movement anymore. Um, the strikes were quickly uh, nipped in the bud. But there was a sense, especially one week after the election on August the 16th, when around 220,000 people came out onto the streets of central Minsk, a complete record in the history of um, independent Belarus. Um, there was a real sense then that Lukashenko, that this could be it for him. And he managed to turn the situation around again, not in ways that most people would like to see, but um, he managed to cling to power. And since then, he's largely stabilized the situation, but it's been stabilized on a kind of pretty grim level, at least um, from the point of view of the average Belarusian trying to live a decent life in the country. 
Yeah, and we're we're seeing glimpses of that, as I said in the introduction, of the things that make the headlines. And the first of those recently was the grounding of the Ryanair flight. Obviously, there was big interest in that here in Ireland because of the connection with the company. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about it? Who was on board? What? Why the flight was diverted? And and what has happened since? Yeah, this was a really kind of a, a shocking act, I think, by Lukashenko that really made people realize that. It's, uh, the crisis in Belarus can kind of spill across his borders. Um, what his regime essentially did is it um, instructed a Ryanair flight that was flying from Athens to Vilnius in Lithuania to change course abruptly just as it was nearing the Belarus-Lithuania border and nearing its destination essentially to redirect to Minsk airport, um, the capital, the airport of the capital of Belarus. And he also scrambled a fighter jet to send into the air and accompany this commercial plane. Uh, when the uh, plane landed, uh, we learned that um, one of the passengers was a dissident blogger, a young man, I think 23 years old, who had set up a anti-government channel for coordinating protests on the Telegram uh, messenger, a guy called Roman Protasevich. Um, and he had long been outspoken against Lukashenko. He had left Belarus um, far in advance of the elections and had been speaking out against Lukashenko um, from exile. Um, and he was flying with his girlfriend, his Russian girlfriend, Sofia Sapiega. Um, and when the plane was redirected and, and landed and made its forced landing in uh, Minsk, the two were taken off board and immediately arrested. And what has happened to Protasevich since is uh, pretty harrowing. Um, he released, or rather the Russian, Belarus's powerful investigative committee released a video uh, address by Protasevich in, in, in which he essentially disavows the opposition movement that he had been part of all this time. Uh, he praises Lukashenko, much kind of in the mold that the average um, Lukashenko supporter in Belarus, um, working class supporter of Lukashenko might uh, phrase it, saying, you know, he respects him. He's a man. He's a man with balls, as uh, Protasevich put it. Um, and all evidence suggests that this video was um, essentially a forced confession of the kind that we've seen many times before in Belarus and Russia, which has quite a similar system to Belarus in some ways. There were signs that, um, you know, he had been uh, tortured. There were marks on his wrist when he gave this uh, video address. Um, and most uh, most publications, most media outlets decided not to publish this just because it was very clear that it was um, recorded under duress. And since then, he's um, set up a Twitter account, which has been twice blocked by Twitter. Not really trying to push any kind of narrative, but just trying to portray himself as a typical guy who decided to return to Belarus and is no longer interested in politics, which is something that's quite hard to believe considering the the transformation he would have had to undergo from one of the most outspoken um, opponents of Lukashenko to someone who just wants to live a quiet life um, in his beloved uh, Belarus. Um, I don't think anyone really believes that story, but that's kind of what we've seen since um, that kind of uh, brazen act uh, of grounding this plane in Minsk. Yeah, and it's obviously a deliberate warning that is terrifying for Belarusians who, who Belarusians who do leave have have spoken out even in the smallest way. And we've seen that play out in Tokyo at the Olympics where Kristina Timonovskaya basically felt like she was being forced to return to Minsk and felt like she couldn't because she wouldn't be safe. Can you fill us in on what, what we know so far about that? Yeah, sure. I think a warning is probably the right way to 
to characterize um, these things. Um, she was, based on her account, um, she was registered for the four by 400 meter relay race in the Olympics, which she never trained for. She was registered for it by uh, Belarusian sports officials um, without kind of prior consultation with her. And this kind of uh, incensed her. So she took to Instagram, she recorded this video saying, uh, you know, you guys just make all the decisions for us. Um, you completely disrespect us. Uh, you never consult us on anything. And now we have to be kind of atoning for your mistakes um, because of your disorganization and competency. And this is a very unusual thing for um, someone who represents uh, Belarus, um, either in sports or, you know, in any other kind of uh, field to be saying publicly. Um, so I think as soon as once you watch that video, it wasn't surprising that a backlash followed, especially considering uh, what we've seen recently from Lukashenko's um, regime. Um, and uh, she was immediately instructed, and we can hear this um, in a leaked call, a, a call that was leaked, um, that she confirmed the authenticity of, uh, where she speaks to uh, two Belarusian sports officials who basically tell her, you have to go home, uh, you have to return to Minsk, go to your parents or wherever you want to go. Um, most importantly, stay quiet, don't make any public comments, um, and this will all blow over. But your participation in the Olympics and in the Belarusian uh, Olympic team um, has come to an end. And I'm sure the expectation was that this young woman would uh, quickly toe the line, uh, that she would um, uh, essentially agree with the what the Olympic officials are saying because you know she's she's part of a system where young people, especially in um, places like universities or sports teams, are not uh, not expected to question um, their management. But instead, she decided to uh, make this public. So she recorded the video saying she's being forced. She's at the airport and she's being forced to board this flight. And as we saw just in the last week, a huge international uproar followed. And um, ultimately, Japanese officials um, took her under their wing. And Poland was one of the countries that offered her asylum. And now she's, um, I believe she's flying to Vienna. I'm not quite sure if Poland is her ultimate destination. But she's been granted a Polish visa. Um, and um, it doesn't look like she'll be returning to Belarus anytime soon. Yeah, and obviously there was a, a third incident then this week where a Belarusian activist was found dead in Kiev. Who was he and why was he in, U in the Ukraine and what do we believe happened? So his name was Vitaly Shushov and he um, is a 26-year-old activist, an opposition activist from Belarus. He left Belarus last year after taking part in um, the anti-government protests, uh, left the country like many other. Belarusians um, and moved to Kiev, like many other Belarusians. Um, Kiev now has a big diaspora of um, Belarusian opposition activists, um, people who backed the opposition movement, and also a lot of um, uh, tech workers, uh, workers in Belarus's uh, very surprising but kind of once burgeoning tech industry. They decided to move to Kiev. Ukraine offered them all kinds of um, all kinds of incentives to come. And Shushov was not a uh, is not a tech worker like many of the others, but he was simply someone who um, wanted uh, ultimately to uh, help uh, Belarusians who move to Ukraine to help them with administrative uh, issues. And he um, he headed up this NGO called the Belarusian House of Ukraine. Uh, to help um, members of the Belarusian diaspora in the country. From what we know from the accounts of his friends and his partner who lived with him um, and other members of the Belarusian house, he left for a jog 
on Monday morning, as he does on most mornings. And subsequently, the following morning, early the following morning, uh, a search party found his body. So his friends immediately cried foul and alleged that this was um, a murder and assassination that has been staged to look like um, a suicide. Um, and uh, friends of his, including um, uh, a fellow employee of the Belarusian House, said that um, members of the diaspora have long have long received warnings, including from the Ukraine security services, that um, members of the KGB, the Belarusian KGB, the security, Lukashenko security service, um, have infiltrated the diaspora in Kiev um, and uh, were essentially looking to eliminate some of them, in the words of these um, friends of uh, Shishov. Um, and Bellingcat, which is the open source investigative group um, based in London, uh, also says that it's received uh, credible reports um, that agents of Russia's FSB, the Federal Security Service, which is the successor to the Soviet era KGB, um, have also been making trips to um, Ukraine to gather intelligence or to conduct other activities that we don't know the details of, uh, aimed against uh, Belarusian opposition activists. So it's unclear at the moment how credible the, the, those reports are. I think we're probably... Uh, due to receive some kind of big investigation from Bellingcat. Um, they're saying they're redirecting all their resources, um, all their sizable resources to investigating Shishov's death. But um, if this was the work of uh, Lukashenko's regime, then it definitely looks like a very drastic escalation in um, what he's willing to do to eliminate his opponents um, now outside of Belarus too. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question about the escalation. Like you said, many activists have fled and there has been emigration of those activists to other countries. And this is a two-part question then on the back of that. One, what is life like for the families they've left behind? And two, those activists now in other countries seeing what's happening in the Ukraine, are their worries even more increased now in the past week that they could be targeted actually even if they're not in Belarus? Uh, yeah, absolutely. All those worries exist. Um, what happens usually is when a Belarusian opposition activist leaves the country, the police um, or the agents of uh, the KGB come to their homes in Belarus. Um, they're not necessarily kind of roughed up or you know detained, um, but they're, they're they're spoken to. Uh, they're questioned about um, their relatives um, and um, the intentions of their relatives in leaving the country. We know already that this has happened to Tsimanovskaya, the athlete, the sprinter who uh, has defected. Um, police visited her parents' home um, and interrogated her parents. I was in Kiev recently. I spoke to several tech workers um, in from Belarus and um, very, very few of them were willing to give their names, largely because they feared for what um, might uh, happen to their families back home if they revealed the reasons, the political reasons for which they um, left the country. So there's real fear among Belarusians who leave the country um, that you know their relatives or even their friends or their, their children um, back home in Belarus um, could be susceptible to some kind of retaliation from the government. And I think in many cases that might also be the reason why uh, some people remain in Belarus because perhaps they fear that the consequences to their family of them leaving the country may be worse than, um, you know, the benefits of uh, establishing a life elsewhere. On the international stage, then, what role does Russia play in all of this? And what is the relationship between Lukashenko and Putin? 
Yeah, this is an interesting thing. I mean, Russia initially, after once the uh, protests broke out in um, last August, Russia largely kind of took a step back in a way, which was quite surprising, um, or perhaps not surprising, considering how high-strung the whole situation was. But um, Putin didn't uh, immediately throw his support um, uh, to Lukashenko. He bided his time. Uh, the Kremlin didn't issue any major statements about the protests. And within a couple of months, and, in, and indeed after, after Lukashenko traveled to uh, Sochi to meet with Putin for the first time, um, a meeting that they've uh, repeated several times since, Russia really publicly decided to back Lukashenko. Very notably, it sent a large amount of Russian state TV journalists to Belarus um, to essentially, um, I guess you could say, almost transform the the TV kind of ecosystem in the country and um, develop these um, very, very smart kind of propaganda methods that Russia uses um, at home. Um, and uh, it's very interesting kind of ca- um, side note, that the Belarusian TV, Belarusian state propaganda has become a lot slicker and a lot smarter since last year. So Russia kind of behind the scenes has definitely been back in Lukashenko. But since a couple of months after the election, um, it's been, um, there's definitely been, from what we've seen, a kind of clear decision made in the Kremlin that um, we are going to at least tacitly support what, what Lukashenko does. So when asked about, when asked in a US TV interview about um, Lukashenko's decision to ground the Ryanair jet, um, the, the plane in Minsk, um, Putin essentially said, uh, you know, he kind of answered with, in his usual what about us way, saying, well, what about, you know, the landing of uh, Colombian um, uh, President Evo Morales' plane in uh, Austria, in, in, in Vienna, I think, in, in 2013, or other incidents where uh, similar things, but by no means really comparable incidents have happened in the past. And he's in many, he's, he's in many ways, Putin has in many ways tried to kind of uh, justify Lukashenko's actions. And we've seen that pattern repeatedly uh, since. I haven't seen a kind of clear Kremlin statement about um, the most recent incidents, um, especially the uh, decision by the, by the Belarusian sprinter to leave, um, to not return to Belarus. Um, but uh, Russian state TV has um, generally kind of backed the Belarusian government line on um, most developments involving Belarus. And then on the other side, what sanctions and by whom have been placed on Belarus in, in the last year? Um, they're mainly sanctions against um, Lukashenko's inner circle, which uh, were softened several years back after, I believe, the 2016 elections when which were considered to be somewhat freer than uh, the elections that came before. And it was uh, also at a time when Lukashenko was um, ruffling feathers with Russia because um, he suggested uh, that he was opposed to uh, the annexation of Crimea um, because he didn't want to, because he, he feared for Belarusian sovereignty. Um, so there was, there was a sense at the time that maybe Lukashenko is changing his ways a little bit and coming slightly uh, moving slightly towards uh, the West. Um, but more recently, there have been tougher sectoral sanctions against um, Belarus's potash industry, which is one of the most lucrative industries in the country, um, targeting, uh, again, specific industries and um, far more kind of um, punitive sanctions against the government. Obviously, uh, Lukashenko critics like Tikhanovskaya says it's uh, far too little and far more needs to be done. And um, what um, needs to be done by the West is, um, you know, the introduction of far more crippling sanctions that essentially 
hobble all exports from the country and um, basically ground the economy uh, into a halt. Um, but you know, we haven't we haven't seen kind of what are you, what some people might call this kind of nuclear option yet. Yeah, because is there anything internally that can happen? Uh, that can move this on, that can change anything, or will it take international pressure um, for Lukashenko's reign to end? I can't see anything, this is my opinion, but I can't see anything um, happening internally. Um, Again, returning to that evening on August 16th when 220,000 people came out into central Minsk um, and, you know, the strikes were commencing all across the country. And Lukashenko really looked like he was on his way out. um, And I was not the only journalist i think who made the mistake of thinking that this was it and we'd be writing a story about uh, a successful uh, belarusian revolution in 2020 um if that day didn't lead to his ouster it's kind of hard to imagine um even if even in the very unlikely scenario that the protest movement could once again mobilize itself to reach anything close to such numbers it's very hard to imagine that it would um that it would lead to his ouster if he's shown that he's willing to unleash really brutal police repression um, against protesters, and he's willing to weather the you know pretty sizable kind of storm of international opprobrium from all Western countries. Um, I, I, I find it hard to imagine that he wouldn't be willing to do that again in the unlikely scenario that the protests would again reach some kind of critical mass. Matthew, thanks so much for coming in today and explaining all that. It's a obviously complex but incredibly fascinating country and it's good to kind of get to know some of the, the modern history of it. So thanks so much for coming in and explaining that to us. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Matthew for joining us today. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.e forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really great way to make sure other people discover, listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.